Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This here is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the absolute crazy circumstances of our modern day and age. My name is Brett. I'm going to be your host on this journey. We're going to talk to a variety of different people who are all representing different worldviews and practices that I think are relevant for helping you keep your butt in the saddle of your life. Which brings us to today's episode. In it, we're going to be traveling to the East to ask the question, what are these Taoist internal arts all about? And are they relevant to my modern life? If they are, how can I get started? And what might that path look like? Will I need a teacher? What the heck is Qi in this Dan Tian that I hear so much about? Well, if you haven't heard about it, then you might be in the wrong circles. Luckily for us, to help guide us into this rich and profound bed of teachings and practices is my new friend, Damo Mitchell. For the uninitiated, Damo is the head of Lotus Nigong International, which is an esteemed school which teaches martial arts, Nigong, today's episode, Qigong, and meditation. Damo started the school back in 2004 after a lifetime of studying across the world with a variety of different teachers. Having grown up in a family of practitioners and beginning his martial arts career very early in life, Damo has an excellent grasp of the material and does an amazing job guiding us into the waters of this often topsy-turvy world. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, everybody. If you want to plug into Damo's platform beyond this episode, head on over to lotusnigong.com. He has virtual teachings. You can get started on this in your home. That's amazing. The internet's great. If you want to support this show, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. You can do the same on Spotify now, which I didn't know before. You can sign up at Patreon at patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. Subscribe on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. All the things on social media, I am there. If you just meet me there, it helps, and I really appreciate it. I see every one of you, and I send you beams of love. So I really appreciate each and every one of you for listening to the show. I am just so excited to be doing this and to be having amazing people such as Damo on. Really, it is such a treat. So without further ado, please sit back, do some stretches, maybe drink some tea, open your hearts for Damo Mitchell. Yeah, awesome. So the train has now left the station. Damo, hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, I just want to start by saying thank you. I know you're incredibly busy with your school and with moving, so I really appreciate your attention and your energy. Thanks for coming on. No, thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. And as I said before we started recording, you actually uh, you give me a break from moving house, which is really good, um, and you got me out of an awkward social dinner. So that's an added bonus as well. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm all yours. <laughs> I love it. Yes. All right. Well, let's make sure you don't have to go late. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was just doing a bit of research into your background. I've been kind of looking into your videos, reading your Instagram posts, and I took the time to go through your story of how you got to be a founder of an international school. Um, and I have to say, you have a very rich and um, diverse background for all the practices that you do. You know, you've traveled all over the mm -hmm. world. You've studied with tons of different teachers who are all exemplars of their their field. And I'm just kind of curious, what was the inciting incident that got you to 
dedicate your whole life to studying and practicing the energy arts of the East? Um, yeah, sure. I, I I certainly did train with some very, as you say, exemplary teachers. That's for that's for sure, and and still do. But I also trained with a lot um, who were dead ends as well. I think that's also a major part of the. Um, the journey for me is that I, I had leads, but I also had a lot of dead ends, and I think that that's been that's been almost <laughs> it's been as time consuming as the roads that were positive for me go down as well. So I I think that um, I think it's important to note as well that anybody that does go down this route who takes so much time, you are going to go down those dead ends, and that's a part of the the training too. So I certainly don't want to pretend that my my journey has all been amazing. Definitely not. Uh, but I started because uh, I started with martial arts when I was a kid, like lots of kids do. Um, I started with my parents originally. And then um, essentially I was introduced to a couple of characters, a couple of people that were highly attained at what they did. And I guess it was their example that made me realize that this is what I wanted to do with their life, with my life. So it wasn't it wasn't the system per se. It was the a couple of individuals that I met that inspired me to um, essentially dedicate my life to these arts uh, because they, they had achieved things above and beyond what I'd encountered before and certainly stuff beyond the material. And that was the eye-opening thing for me. And that's what really turned me into a, a fanatic, I should say. So what were some of those qualities or experiences that you had that were like, oh, like I, I really mm -hmm. want to dive into this more? Um, well, I was I was just a horribly uh, what would you say, close-minded individual when I was younger. I suppose as, as much as anything else, if I couldn't eat it, hit it, or whatever, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really interested. I didn't think it was real. So obviously, martial arts for me were a very um, sort of raw physical practice as much as anything. Uh, so I, I was quite close-minded, I suppose. And then I was I was a very angry individual when I was younger as well, very frustrated, very annoyed, generally at everything, which I suppose with hindsight was anger at myself, of course, but it was it's easier to express it outwards than than face the fact that you don't like yourself very much. So it, that was kind of like a, a feeling that was always there. So the first time I ever walked into the space or was in the presence of a teacher that had touched soul or spirit, for one, if you want to whatever you want to call it, as soon as I stepped into the space of their aura <clears throat> and then experienced all of that anger and that frustration just fading away and all of the things that I felt made me strong, all of the protection I'd built around myself and this fragile little sort of structure of strength I'd built in my mind, all just eradicated as soon as I was in their presence and, and left with, for the first time in my life, bliss uh really i suppose so that was the initiator so as soon as i was within their presence i recognized okay this is someone who through simply being in the room with me is able to completely disarm me and destroy everything i built around myself that was it and that was i was already a bit amazed and then as i spent time with them and i got to see what they were capable of doing and their comprehension of reality and the way they could bend energy around themselves i i mean once you've seen that which is quite rare, I think, for people to experience. How can you not dedicate your life to it was the conclusion I came to. So then a few times in my life, actually, <laughs> I tried to step away from it. I was like, right, this is silly. Everyone's telling me to get a career. I'll go to university. I'll get a job. I'll do something normal. 
none of it ever worked because once I'd experienced those things, there wasn't anything else I could do really. So I, I was just sucked onto that path. But if I hadn't met those people, I probably wouldn't have carried on with this because the the systems themselves and the culture, the tradition, whatever you want to call it, don't inspire me particularly. They never have done. But the results for the people do, if that makes mm. sense. You know. Yeah, yeah. So from that point, you you had met some people that were very influential and you decided to travel the world and just go meet more of those people. Is that kind of how that unfolded? Well, I didn't think that far ahead, actually. At the time, I didn't have any money. So traveling uh, abroad wasn't particularly easy, I have to say. So I, I stayed with the the first couple of teachers I met. Uh, one was called, a guy, I should name them really. One was a guy called Shen Hongzun, who was um, incredibly interesting Chinese uh, Qigong teacher, who's quite well known, I suppose, in the UK uh, and around Europe. But then he passed away. Um, and then by that time, by the time he passed away, I'd already traveled a little bit to kind of explore martial arts in Asia. But then once he was gone, yeah, there was even more reason to go hunting. So I had to, so I, I got some money together to work in horrible night shifts in a steelworks. And then I headed out to Asia to see what I could find. And the first few years were a bit empty, but then eventually I found um, alchemy. I found some alchemy teachers and then some Nagong teachers, specifically people called like Wang Haitao and stuff like that, that I stayed with. But I never looked for the system. I, I, I feel like I should really highlight that. Like I wouldn't have cared if I'd have met, do you know what I mean? If the teacher had been Zulu, I'd have studied that. I didn't care what it was. It could have been Native American. I, I'd really had no particular connection to a particular line. It was just that I guess I had a little bit more experience in Asian art. So therefore China made sense. That's where I headed. So I always hunted out the practitioner more than anything else. Um, and then increasingly, you know, as you go deeper and you learn more, you learn to get introduced to more people, handshakes, introductions, and like I say, dead ends and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's kind of what I've been doing over the years, really, trying to get to the bottom of these arts. And I've come to realize that one of the most important things in these arts is the system. But equally as important is the presence or what would you say? Hmm, the direct assistance, perhaps, of somebody who's mastered that system as well. Like the system is, you know, you need you need the teacher too. And yeah. so the person effect was really major. So, yeah, that's what I've been researching more mm -hmm. than anything else, which has taken a really long time. <laughs> but yeah. it's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting the emphasis that you're placing on the role of the teacher because that's something that I also mm. recently have really made contact with. I was telling you before mm. this um, that I was kind of like a spiritual mutt. I was kind of, I'd like listen to lectures and stuff, but it was really when I interacted and actually had a relationship with somebody who had exemplified the tradition I was going into and having somebody look at you and be able to like guide you very directly, it was like jet fuel you know it was just such a different tonal thing um so yeah that's it's massive yeah it's, it's massive. huge and it's interesting because i find that here in the west you know i talk to people a lot about my experiences and how important my teachers have been for me and a lot of people have kind of an aversion against teachers i think we really i i at least specifically gurus you know at least here in the states ah, is yes. You know, there's just, you always hear about like the shysters, like the, the people who sure. abuse their power, but you never hear about like the hundreds or thousands of people who are operating in integrity and with good intention. Sure. 
Yeah, yeah. I think there's a thing, isn't there, where all of us are frightened of being conned. I suppose is that an inherent fear within all of us? We're, we're frightened of an email after our sort of bank card details all the way through to we're frightened of somebody making us join their cult or something like that. Or So I, I guess I, I, I can see it. What difference did it make to you? What what did you feel, if if you don't mind me asking? What was the what did it do for your cultivation to have a, a, a live person? I'm curious if it's the same as as my experience. So the experience that I had, so it was during COVID, um, and I know that this probably might have an effect, but everything that I've done has been virtual. So you know, I'm training in okay. the the Buddhist yep. system, which is based on mindfulness. And I've had a lot of interaction with my teacher, my set of teachers at this point. And just having somebody be able to like, look at your situation and be able to kind of speak to where you actually are and having that receptivity, like saying like, here's what I'm struggling with in particular and having them from a standpoint of having worked with that themselves, be like, well, hey, here's some things to look out for. And now go have your practice with that in mind. And really empowering me to also trust myself. I think that that was a big thing, you know, because there's a lot of, at least in my in my past, I'm always like tiptoeing because I, I don't really want to um, just like overstep or like commit myself to like a wrong view, you know, and having sure. somebody be yeah, like, no, yeah. you, you yeah. can trust your intuition. You can trust, you know, by having these guidelines. And I don't know if that tracks to your experience, but... Yeah, yeah, completely. And it, that, that also by sort of ties into that idea you were saying of a, what was the word you used? I liked it. A shyster. Yeah. It sounds to me like the kind of word the uh, sort of 1950s American gumshoe would use. I, yep. I've not heard that word very much. But <laughs> I like yeah, it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like a, it sort of ties into a kind of shyster um, would be that I think a part of the difference is that those kind of people often try to make you dependent upon them rather than enabling you to understand okay there's a set of guidelines and rules that we follow of course there's a system a set of parameters are important um, but you still have to be autonomous with regards to your your training so that you're not disempowered by uh, by the practice and, and that's quite a major distinction i think between teachers certainly one that i saw uh, when i was training yeah 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 and i would say the other thing about it was also just having somebody tell like exemplify and show you like this is possible like this path is accessible and like you in your confused neuroses can do this you know because sometimes sure, you sure, can sure. just like have that lack of faith and it's like how could i possibly be like one of these great people who are doing these amazing things and <laughs> just having them like hey i was there too you know that was sure yeah, was yeah. Huge. i think we also ignore sometimes the the way that nervous systems interact a little bit as well which is part of the problem with online tuition and i'm aware that the irony of that is I teach online but it, it's it's a it's like a nervous systems in people have this amazing plasticity I always think so if somebody if two people meet each other there's like a, a harmonization of the two that takes place and even a, a changing of the way the tissues line up and the way the energies the magnetism of the body forms so I think there's actually a, a transference of mastery through an art that has to happen person to person because I don't think that can happen through zoom or something I'm not yeah. sure that's going to happen you know yeah. We, we can't ignore that. Yeah. The, the, the amazing abilities human beings have is to replicate each other and to be influenced by each other is huge. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. yeah. I think. Yeah. And that's why I, I know in a lot of Eastern traditions, I mean, it is purely 100% you need a teacher. <laughs> you know, it's like all the mm -hmm. books in the world will not replicate that experience of 
that transference, you know, that transmissional quality of just being, communicating to being, you know. Yeah, totally. Especially as a lot of the Chinese arts are very, um, they have a physical component to them as well. So I'm aware uh, you said you're in uh, Buddhist traditions and Buddhist lines, and obviously there's many of them have a physical component uh, for sure with regards to what they do in the body. But I would argue that um, sort of alchemy, Nagong, Taoist lines have a, a, a much higher degree of somatic or physical things because of the martial arts being connected to them and things like that. So, I, yeah, I mean, as much as, as anything, the learning, especially in those kind of arts, is done hands-on. It has to be. Uh, it, it would be it would be like you, a massage therapist. You say you, you work as a body worker. I would imagine that when you were learning, you had a, a master-level body worker get their hands on you, right? So that, <laughs> so yep. that, that skill is almost sort of subconsciously transferred into your body when you're learning, I, I would guess. Yeah, I would suppose. 100%, yeah. yeah. It's interesting working with like other body workers that may have gone to different schools and you could feel their teacher's effects on them just based on their view of the body. You can like, they encode that into your nervous system. So I find it fascinating. It's like, I got to be careful with who I let like interface with my being, you know? And again, that goes back to people's <laughs> distrust and, you know, we're very vulnerable and like squishy and malleable. So we want to make sure we only let the right people sure. in, but there still yeah. has to be like a gate to actually allow people to make that contact. Mm. But, you know, I, yeah. You, you, yeah. you know, you had mentioned a few times, and this is kind of the main thing I wanted to talk about was alchemy, right? So Nadon, uh, you've used the term Nigong, which is part of the name of your school. I'm kind of curious with your story and everything that you have studied, all the different martial arts systems, um, where does this idea of internal alchemy kind of nestle within the Taoist arts? Yeah, it's it's sometimes difficult to pin down, actually. People will have different uh, views on it. But, I mean, the alchemy is, um, is the meditation system or, or linked to the meditation system of Taoism. So people come from a Buddhist background probably find it easiest to equate with um some of the, it's kind of like the meditation mix with some of the 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 yogas of vajrayana buddhism it's not the same but you can kind of equate it to parallel kind of stages so what it means what i mean by that is there's subtle energy work and then there's physical work and then there's there's work with the magnetism and the electricity in the body which we call yin and yang and then on top of that there's consciousness work with the meditation as well, which has similarities to most other Eastern meditation systems. So that's kind of core of it. And then all of the other arts, I would argue, are either subdivisions of alchemy sort of came out of it. Like Nagong definitely comes from alchemy. It's like a, a derivative of that specializes in one area of alchemical practice and puts it into a more of a body-based um, system. And then Qigong is derived from it as well, as far as I can see. Um, and then it, it influenced other arts like Tai Chi. So I don't know if Tai Chi came from alchemy, but it's definitely been influenced by it. I would say that mm -hmm. Tai Chi is more of a Shaolin system that stole a bit of alchemy and chucked it all together <laughs> to create something new. Yeah. So that's how I see it. Um, historians might disagree because they have a very set time for when alchemy appears, but I don't believe them. I think uh, I think when things when written when written records appear, is not the same as when something was started to be practiced within these ancient yep. um, traditions. So for me, alchemy sits at the core of most of the most of the Taoist lines these days. Okay. Uh, I think I think without alchemy, Taoism is difficult. You know, 
like hard to understand it it becomes becomes what it becomes a philosophy i don't know it, it uh, so i think it's vital vital to the practice and unfortunately it's quite rare i mean nadan's not that well known in the west i don't think it's amazingly well known in asia anymore because of obviously the cultural revolution and the persecution that that the practitioners went through but it is having a, a, a resurgence it's coming back uh, as much as anything mm -hmm. but the majority of what i teach is Gong, really and then Nadan is generally what the seniors practice within my school interesting so you'd suggest if people were looking to study something like this they'd start with Gong. is that kind of the traditional uh stepping stone that you'd um teachers will vary but for me yes i think it's wise okay. i think especially if you know, you're not four years old, born in a monastery and or handed over to the monastery as a child or something and been sitting for hours every day. You've, you've probably been walking around and standing up and using your body. So we, we generally start with Nagon because it's a bit more body based. Um, okay. I, I think it's easier. It, I think, it'll, you know, there's stages of development you can do in alchemy that you can also do in Nagon and Qigong. But it's easier through Nagong and Qigong, so you may as well start there. That's my logic. I mean, if, if you can do certain stages in an easier way, you may as well. And then generally yeah. from there, we, we guide somebody into alchemy. Because I really think people should sort their bodies out um, as much as anything, and <laughs> rather than worrying about merging with Tao at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I feel That's like there'd logic. be a lot of... Tao later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, you know, something that I recognize with Buddhism that kind of keeps getting hammered on, and I'm sure you probably have to deal with this too, is like the energy of maybe too much ambition or like wanting an outcome so much that it gets in the way of like, it's, it's very compelling. Like I can merge with the Tao, like there's a thing where I can just be completely absorbed into, you know, and it's like that enticing, it just kind of like fuels the desire mechanism, Sure, you know? Well, that's another reason for the Qigong and the Neigong. You can burn the desire out on the body-based stuff. So by the time you get to the meditation, mm -hmm. hopefully you've worked through those layers. Hopefully. Okay. You know, because you can't you yeah. can't tell someone to yeah. not be ambitious or driven, can you? Is that possible? I mean, teachers yeah. do, but it's not going to work. So yeah. they have to burn yeah. it out yeah. on something yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. So would you say, so like starting off with Neigong then, you know, originally I wanted to talk about the the more meditative, but if you're saying that this is kind of the entryway, what exactly, what does that system kind of look like and what's its goal? Like the, the Nigong, the main thing that you teach. If you could distill it down into its base, like here's where we are, here's where you want to be. Like what's that process look like? Okay, uh, I should try. I mean, ultimately it is, it yeah. is a spiritual <laughs> practice, meaning that it's, it's aiming to unify with spirit. I mean, that's really what the definition of spiritual practice is to me, quite simply. Um, but it, I guess what differs is a little bit is there's a sequential process that you need to go through. The logic being almost that you have to transform your, your body into a temple so that the spirit wants to reside within it. If you want to is the metaphor imagery that's often used. So this is why we have to, um, open the channel system and gather and thicken the body's energy, the chi as well to prepare the system, uh, for such a thing. Because this might sound like a, a strange concept, but it's certainly a very sort of Taoist idea that what we call Shen or spirit, sort of connection to the divine, if you are given the grace to receive it, then there's two options. One, it hits you 
and it's a fleeting experience, meaning you're like, oh, oh, I merge with all of the universe and I'm nothing but unconditional love and I am one with Tao. And then by Wednesday, you're back to the schmuck you were before, you know, like it didn't stay. So the idea is to try to prepare the body as much as anything so that it can anchor that experience and then retain that connection to spirit. So I would argue that the best or the most important function of Nagong, maybe not important, the emphasis for Nagong is that really, to prepare the body system on a physical and a subtle level so that it can retain connection to spirit when you're at that stage. That's as succinct as I can put it, I think. <laughs> I think that was great, yeah. I'm kind of curious about like the unalchemized body and like what about it is unable to like maintain that connection to spirit. Like if it does somehow accidentally fall into this connection with the divine, like what about our system needs to be alchemized to fortify it? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a good question and actually um, a tricky one. So off the top of my head. I mean, the terminology they use is obviously the channels need to be open, the body needs to be open. Okay, those are fairly inadequate, aren't they? They're, they're concepts. But if I were to take it more literally, I would say that you have a physical body, physical version of you, nerves, cells, tissues, all of these kind of things. There's then a more subtle layer of your body, which is really the balance of yin and yang within the body. And then you have consciousness. That would be our three layers that we really sheaths, if you want, to use more Hindu terminology that we focus on within the body. So anything that happens at the level of consciousness or spirit has to be reflected within the energy system as well as the physical body as well. Like one can't change without the other. So what we do is we prepare the body by making sure that the yin and yang energies are as balanced as they can possibly be. And this is where all of the channel opening and building of Dantian and things like this come in. And this takes a long time and we prepare it so that when that realization or that awakening happens from our meditative practice, that we're kind of not immediately slung shot out of it, you know, so the energy is there to ground or anchor that experience. And the funny thing is that with an awakening or enlightenment, there is an energetic component to it. There's an energetic patterning that that happens, hence the reason that that teacher can have an aura that just kind of diffuses all of your defense mechanisms and makes you feel vulnerable. There's a there's a radiance around them, you know. So that patterning we build into the body as much as we can so that it stabilizes the spiritual experiences so that the jhanic states can be extended out or union with Tao using Taoist terminology. So that that's that's the logic behind it. And because the Taoists are mechanical, anally retentive nut jobs, they developed a whole sort of plethora of teachings around channel systems and circulations and da, 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 da. and this is really where all of the kind of qigong terminology comes in it was like how to understand the workings of the subtle body so that it can anchor that experience so i find that well i find it works i mean i'm not claiming to be anything more than an idiot but certainly <laughs> some of the people that i've trained with are beyond such a stage and they've managed to anchor such experiences into their their body and a lot of the people I teach are meditators from other traditions, um, such as Buddhism, lots of Theravadans where I am teaching, particularly Theravadans, actually. don't know why. Seems to be the, the ones who want to come. Um, because they also recognize that the, the kind of body work or energy of Nagong can, once again, anchor their experience from, from their meditation into their body as well to stabilize it for longer. Yeah. So I think, did that answer your question? Oh, no, so. yeah, that was, that was perfect. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm curious about like someone comes to you, they don't have any spiritual underpinning. They're like, they have this subtle sense, like I need to develop something. Like what is the first thing that you do as a teacher to like guide them into this practice? Okay. That's a good question too, huh? These are different. Well, first, firstly, I would say I don't normally get that kind of person, to be honest, because I think I have a reputation for attracting obsessives. So most of my work <laughs> is to try to make people unobsessed. But I think like attracts like. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of score. But when we do get those people come along and, and they come along to the score, um, I guess the other thing people are looking for is health as much as anything. So I also spend a lot of time teaching them okay, how to work with your body, how to make your, your mind and your body as healthy as possible, which is a lot of what I do in the foundation stages. And generally what happens is they end up kind of getting sucked into the other stuff anyway, to be honest. That's that's where they end it's up. Part of the atmosphere, um, yeah. Yeah, they end up going down there and they start hearing about this other stuff and the next thing they know, they want to, you know, unify with the Tao, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you start working with health, um, you know, getting into like the mm. the, the gong, um, you know, with with that, you know, I hear this term a lot, and you you did just use it, and I know that it's like an essential component of pretty much all these systems, and I have like a faint understanding of it, but that is the dantian, okay, you know, and I know that there's ah, like okay. uh, it has something to do with your lower abdomen, but what exactly is this? Because from my understanding, it's like one of the fundamentals, right? That's right, yeah. I mean, Dantian can refer to a, a few different things. So it can refer to a few locations in the body, or after a while it can refer to a more qualitative aspect of the training. But at the beginning, I would normally assume people are talking about the lower Dantian and the abdomen. That's usually what we say. If we don't specify differently, we're talking about that. But just because I know there'll be some Taoist scholars probably listen to this that, that I know it's it does refer to other stages as well but I'm specifically referring to the abdominal dantian which is where you need to start is that to put it simply the dantian it's a field that needs building in the lower abdominal space so what we do is we to put it simply we increase the magnetism in the abdominal region of the body so we have very specific methods to do this so that essentially a magnetic field builds um beneath the diaphragm and above the, the perineum. And this is yin chi. This is what we gather. We draw it in. So when it pulls in, it's a very physical, tangible, very, very clear, somatic, not imagination, not subtle um, experience of a, of a magnet gripping a hold of your body and almost sort of turning you inside out a little bit. There's, there's a huge amount of work that takes place down there. Um, it's fairly easy to do. It, it you know, it's not difficult. You just have to know the method. Um, and then people can do it very quickly. And this yin field, yin is said to be the container. And very much for the Dantian, what it does is it contains the other chi, which is yang chi, which is a kind of electrical energy that we send into that abdominal space to fill that container. So when they talk about packing the body with chi or filling it with chi, what they mean is to send um, electrical energy that we develop in the body down into the abdominal space where it's stored within the magnetic field of the outer shell of the, the Dantian, and, and this is what we fill up. So it has to be done in sequence because you can't send Yang Qi, what normal Qi if you want, down to the abdomen unless there's something to contain it. So like when, otherwise it just disappears, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it fades out. Um, and when I started Qigong, I, with the first teachers I had, um, they were very good. I, I wouldn't speak negatively of them, but you know they, they were comparatively not they weren't masters, you know, and I think they would admit the same. 
It's that there was they were good with how to work the body. That's true. But they would also talk a lot about getting the chi into the Dantian, but of course there was no Dantian. So what was happening was any chi you did build was gone by the time you went to sleep. And sometimes, of course, all it did was hyperstimulate the nerves around the base of your body and made you sexually aroused or something like that. And then it was gone and it didn't serve any purpose. Mm. Normally you'd gone out and done something, you know, debaucherous over the weekend <laughs> as a result of it, but nothing was being stored, you know. And um, and then it was only when someone showed me, okay, there's a way to actually generate this f magnetism within the body that stores this chi that I understand, okay, okay, there's something more to this. And that's the Dantian. So the reason we do this is uh, twofold. One is it organizes everything. You imagine like you've got iron filings on a piece of paper and I put a magnet underneath it and they all kind of line up like you probably did at school or something in, at some stage. It does a very similar thing to much of the, the energy within your body. So it reorganizes various aspects of your nervous system and even the way the tissues are shaped. It gives birth to the internal body, which um, is a very specific way for the body to function. And then after that, it builds up more yang chi, which is like charging up a battery, essentially. And that gives us more energy to work with so that we can access. I don't know if it's deeper. I don't know if it's up or down. Maybe it's sideways, you know what I mean? But it just enables us to access different layers of our body of our body system that would have been hard to access before. And that's mm. how we open the channels. So that's what the Dantian is, um, certainly at the beginning anyway. Interesting. Is it's there, fun as well. Is, yeah, <laughs> it, it sounds pretty fascinating. Is, is there any yeah, risk of like, if you have maybe like a miscommunication from your teacher or like, is there any potential harm? Like you're just collecting all this energy and like, <laughs> like yeah, if you, if you don't handle that correctly, could you have an adverse yeah. reaction? Yeah, you can. I mean, most people when they're gathering, it's going to sound mean, most people when they're gathering chi, they don't have the dantian anyway, so they're not going to store it. So the biggest risk they're going to get is um, one of two things. One, they'll either hyperstimulate the nervous system and go into a bit of sort of fight or flight response, something like that. Um, or the second reaction is it might get a bit of abdominal distension um, because the fascia can get quite tight around the intestines, which means you're they don't function quite so well. So you can swell a little bit. You can get minor things like that. And people call that chi belly, right? But often what it is is a pot belly from the fascia not moving around your intestines. So you can get that. But more major things are more likely to happen. More major things are more likely to happen if you build the yang chi and send it into the nerves around your spine without having that field at the bottom properly anchored. That's probably the best way I can explain it. So a lot of the work, similar to Buddhism, around um, sort of, uh, what do you call it, calm abiding and things like this, these kind of mental qualities basically prevent that chi kind of hyper-stimulating the nerves as much as anything. Mm. Um, th those are the kind of your main errors um, as much as anything. And then, of course, it can interact with recreational drug use, hallucinogenics, mental illness, mm. uh, things you would imagine uh, as well. But there's more risky practices in Qigong than Dantian building, far more risky. Um, Dantian building is quite safe compared to some of the others. Yeah. I would okay. say. So, you know, at this point in like the developmental process, you have people working on just kind of like their general health, they're building their Dantian, mm -hmm. they're starting to slowly work their Yang Qi, moving it through the subtle channels of the body. Where do you typically, like, what is the development of that? Where does that go once you're like, oh, I'm actually like moving energy, I'm starting to feel a little bit better. Like, do, do you, can you just hang out in that space or what does that expand into? 
it'd be nice if you could hang out in that space, Brett. That sounds that sounds really pleasant, actually. But no, unfortunately, with alchemy, there's a whole system that we work through. Um, so one of the next parts of the the body really is, uh, I guess you could translate it in English as purging as much as anything. And there's a lot of work there, which sounds a bit sort of serious, doesn't it? Purging, it but does, actually, yeah. it's quite it does, an entertaining. Yeah. It's quite an entertaining part of the process. The body has to flush out things that it stores because I think. As a body worker, I'm sure you know the body is amazing at storing all of the the things we don't want it to store. It's quite good at that, really, isn't it? All of yeah. the various things from our past. There's a whole history there, and of course, all of that that stuff that's stored in the body. Um, what it does is it causes the uh, the the nerves to not function as well as they can, and the tissues to bind up and and the chi to not flow. So we have to get it all out. So. The actual process of opening the channels and moving the chi and clearing out uh, the blockages, it's quite a lengthy process, actually. It can take quite a while. Um, but thankfully, there's quite a lot of exercises and things to do. So it's quite a varied part of the process. And I think for most people who want sort of health on an internal level, that's probably enough, actually. Like, that's that's enough. Like, you've, you've got an amazing system for resetting and purging and clearing the mind and the body. And, and a lot of people kind of stay there and, and don't go much beyond it. And then only those people that really want to explore something deeper, I suppose, go further than that in, in alchemy, you know. But they have to have a sense of humor because it can also be quite unpleasant, the purging process, because you can, you know, your guts do crazy things and you get headaches and all kinds of crazy things while the body purges out it's just like when you've had a really deep tissue massage and you have a sort of you get this weird bodily reaction some people do don't they where they yeah. get sort of halitosis and sweaty and all that yeah. kind of stuff similar things can happen from nagong as well interesting so we're not just talking about like an emotional purging but there's like a physical component where you're having a physiological like like yeah, responses totally. yeah wow okay. yeah, yeah yeah it's heavy it's a heavy heavy process yeah. yeah um you can go into it gently but no no it it goes deep you know i mean it ultimately it's a it's a transformational system linked to spiritual practice right so by its very nature it's going to be heavy because i believe that rightly or wrongly i i believe that connection to spirit is the hardest endeavor a human being will ever do i think it, it simply is the most difficult thing for a human being, which is why so few ever manage a, a full connection to it. I mean, you've got, I personally think you've got more chance of making it in Hollywood, you know, as a top actor than you do of, of achieving a full realization or awakening. It's that difficult. So therefore, um, the preparatory work of opening the channels and moving the chi by its very nature is going to be quite deep. It's going to go quite deep, you know? Yeah. It seems like, you know, it, by function is going to have to ask a lot of you because I mean, it's just kind of, it's really only for those who are like the most ardent and serious about undertaking that kind of journey. So it's like all those threshold guardians that you have to kind of pass in order to like kind of totally, yeah. make yourself worthy or whatever. I think you have to be adventurous. Yeah. That's what I see as the key quality. Cause I think human beings are more resilient than they think they are. There's an air of fragility that I think a lot of people have that they view with themselves. And, and actually, I don't think people are that fragile. Not really. I just think they're convinced they are. So I think that their bodies can take it. Their minds can take it. They can take it. But they have to be adventurous and have a good sense of humor because sometimes it's not always the most um, 
pleasant process. <laughs> Not yeah. always the most pleasant, but we have a laugh while we're doing it, for sure. Yeah. I think that's like the hallmark of like most accomplished spiritual people. Like a lot of people get this like idea of people in like white robes who are very just kind of like calm, but like every person <laughs> I've met who has any degree of attainment or realization is that they're funny as hell. Like they're just playing with the situation as it arises and that like spon spontaneous nature has always just really inspired me. That's been a part of the transmissional quality I've gotten from my teachers is that it's not this like super like like uptight like austere thing it's always like we're we're just riffing and playing and there's just this like exchange happening that just feels really honest yeah i agree never trust a serious spiritual practitioner yeah. because if they haven't seen through the the great joke at least of themselves and found it really funny uh then uh i'd be concerned Actually, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I would agree with your experience. All of the the, the practitioners I would hold in in great esteem. Um, yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're jovial, light-hearted people that that are confused at how seriously other people take life. I think, yeah, I, if I were to yeah. summarize how they are, yeah, more than anything else. That gets me in trouble, so, though, you know? I mean, so, at the yeah. same time, people who don't know me see me from the outside. It's amazing how many teachers don't like the irreverence to my approach to these arts and, and the fact that I think something can be held as sacred in your soul and in your heart, but it doesn't have to be expressed verbally as something sacred. And I don't have to pretend to be sacred. And I don't have to sit a certain way or stand a certain way or speak a certain way. It, it's not... It's not related to how you feel on the inside. And I, I think that's an important thing for, for people to try to realize in these arts, you know? I love that. Yeah, for me, it, it kind of feels like a skillful means to treat it in a way externally that's like a little bit more lighthearted because I find it to be more accessible. And it's like if you really cherish the thing that you're practicing, you want to be able to share it with people. And there's a certain karmic situations where people are going to be really adverse to just like religiosity. You know, I think that a lot of people, at least in my country, my age group, you know, there's a kind of a throwing away of religious traditions and institution, yes. which people sadly lump spirituality into. They haven't found the way to like separate those two realities. Yeah. And I, I think as well, I mean, actually, actually on that note, a little controversial is I think that's a little bit of a mistake for people to throw away the religion. As they, as they do, I think it's a bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because, of course, within any religion, there's a huge amount of amazing truth contained within them as well. It's just that, you know, the, the witch burnings were a bit depressing and all that, weren't they? But, you know, there's a core within those arts that I, I do think it's a shame that people instantly rebel against them, but I get it. I, I do get it. I, but I think with regards to humor as well and, and how you are, like, as a teacher, you what kind of relationship are you going to have with the people you teach? Because you can either be, what, a father figure? Like, a well, as a male anyway, when we give you a surrogate father figure, that sounds like a pain in the ass. I mean, <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have my own kids. I don't have experience <laughs> of doing that. And then those students are just going to overlay all of their father issues onto me and end up resenting me. So that's no good. And then what can I do? I could play the wise master. Well, that's no good because I'm an idiot. So I can't <laughs> do that. And, and, and they'll see through it. It's a pretense. And people do see through it. So then the only other option you're left is to be friends. That's it. I mean, and it's amazing how many people have told me, no, 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 you need better boundaries. Why? 
why can't I just be friends? It's more like a, a long-term friendly relationship and I, I help you through this process. And, and how do you communicate with your friends? You sense of humor. I mean, that's what people do when they get together. They laugh and they joke and, and they grow together as a group through what's essentially a, a positive emotional connection. And that's why I think that teachers should express that themselves. Because while a teacher has to be able to hold a certain degree of authority through their expertise within a space, you still have to relate to people and you're going to have to find a, a healthy way to, to do it. And, and people always learn. They learn better that way. They learn better that way yeah. for sure. Even if you don't always understand the sense of humor of every country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. got myself in trouble in America with that before, for sure. Yeah. The sense yeah, of humor is very different. Through, yes. We're <laughs> kind of going different. through like a cultural situation right now where we're really questioning like what is safe and acceptable socially to joke about. And if you say the yes. wrong thing, then you're out. I've you know, and then people are going to let you know how out you are. <laughs> Yeah, it yeah. used to be when I first came to America 10 years ago, you couldn't talk about um, religion, just that, I think, actually, well, that, was, that was the taboo subject. And then um, increasingly, that list has got bigger over the years. And on the last trip to America, I, I realized that it was like 90% of the things I find interesting, I couldn't speak about because people were very volatile. I do hope that relaxes. I really do. Because uh, America is an amazing culture. Um, very different from Europe and very amazing, but it, it's all a bit it's all a bit tense at the moment. Yeah, we're chilling out. Yeah, they all need a holiday. Yeah. You all need a holiday in America. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, you know that might be the name of this episode. Is we just need a holiday. <laughs> I think so. That's yeah. my advice. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I, I kind of wanted to double back to this idea of connecting to spirit. Because for me, it, sure. yeah, as somebody who is, you know, really immersed in like the Buddhist situation where they kind of talk about the inherence of Buddha nature and how it's like you cannot be separated from it. And it's more a process of like uncovering the sun behind the clouds. It, there's like a, yes. an alienatable connection there. But I don't really know too much about like the Taoist system. And I know Christianity kind of also has this kind of you have to like move toward and there's like a union. So I'm kind of curious in the Taoist system, what is referred to as spirit and you know, like what's the relationship between spirit and I guess, again, I don't know if this is a term that's used, but ego or self or our limited where we are now. It, it, it's not all that different from other spiritual traditions with regards to their, their view. Um, so the idea being that I mean, okay, so one thing that is different, I suppose, actually, within Taoism, we would talk about, if I convert it to English terms, a difference between, you know, material self and mind, okay, we have all of that, what you might call the ego or our self-perception, we have that. But then we have something, we have the soul as well, which is what sometimes differs us from some Buddhist lines, is that there is that as well, and then that it becomes a stepping stone towards spirit. So we have these kind of three aspects of ourselves. So part of the key um, importance really with regards to that side of Taoism is to understand that the true self is the soul. That's really what it is. So a lot of our, our work is to reverse the light, as they say, and return our awareness to an ability to understand what the soul is. And most of our teachings, and, and I think many Taoists wouldn't necessarily agree with this, but to me, most of the core tenets of Taoism with regards to things like Wu Wei, Zuran, phrases people would hear as core ideas, 
are to help you understand the nature of the soul, which is your true self. Once there is absorption into that, then gradually what it can start to do is merge back towards spirit. With Similar to what you're saying, it's always been there. It's always been at the core of who we are. It's just that rather than being masked like clouds over the sun, maybe it'd be easier from, from our perspective to think of it as it's like you're orientated according to the wrong thing. So your true self is, is using the what you might call the ego, if you want, the, the red dust, the layers of who you are, to orientate itself in the wrong direction. So it's seeing itself in the wrong way. It's, it's not seeing truth. It's not seeing what it is. So most of the, the meditative work is to get us to get out of that so that we can learn to see the self for what it truly is. And then that's when the soul is contacted. Um, mm. radiated through the body and that becomes a bridge towards spirit after that unification with uh, with the divine I don't say the Tao actually because the Tao is a more complicated term but for a bridge over towards connection with the divine with spirit itself that's not that different from some other meditation systems it's just um, maybe their emphasis you know what they put weight on is a little different from some others mm. it I would say Thanks for that. Is there a um, something within the the system that has explained how we've become misidentified? Because I know like Buddhism <laughs> has this whole like Abhidharma teaching of how we mm. kind of attach ourselves to certain things. That so like what is there like an origin story to I guess confusion or whatever the appropriate term for that is? Yeah, I mean Taoism's pretty old and quite um, um, what would you call it? You know, there's a lot of different components coming to it. It's quite eclectic with regards to its history. So a lot of old shamanistic and sort of pantheistic beliefs and things kind of connected into it too. So it depends how far you want to go back. They have everything from creation myths um, of the human species through to direct meditation teachings. Um, but their, their view would simply be um, that, a, that a part of the role of human beings uh, when they come onto this earth and they're born is that they're supposed to essentially accrue knowledge. And part of the, the accruing of knowledge is what separates them from the understanding of, of true self. You can go back into sort of, you know, cosmological or mythical reasons, but I don't think they matter. Like, I don't think they, you know, I mean, like it, it becomes an exploration of things for the sake of it. Like, uh, you're never going to know for sure. It will just become opinion. So what we tend to do is try to understand, well, what was the natural process that caused fabricated mind dualistic mind to form around our true self and, and that's what we try to change that's what we call returning to the source mm. or, or going back to being like a child to to get back to it a lot of chinese medicine's based on that you know mm. like um chinese medicine theory grew out of alchemical theory and and as much as anything and a lot of that is the the kind of explanation of the accruing of the untrue self around the soul and then all they do is they overlay that model onto the physical body and, and created chinese medicine uh, as much as anything so yeah it's quite quite complex what do yeah. you think why, why are we here brett oh what yeah. are we doing on this planet yeah why are you here 
Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I always, at this point, it, it, my answer has changed pretty much every six months at this point. Okay. But, you know, like leaning into like the Buddhist system is that it was all just like a mistaken identity. And I mean, this is kind of maybe the biggest distinction is, you know, within Buddhism, they have the teaching of Anatman, which is not self, mm -hmm. you know, so this idea that mm -hmm. we're actually a bunch of smaller individual energy packets coming together and we create this illusion that we are this coherent mm -hmm. stable thing and it's actually the attachment to the idea that we are one finite fixed thing that actually perpetuates mm -hmm. that cycle of confusion and mis uh, identification so whether or not that that's what it is i mean that's my working basis right now is just kind of experiencing how that seeps sure. into my day-to-day -day lived experience and my own stuckness and my own like oh i want that oh i don't want that i'm gonna ignore that you know and just using that as a nexus to just really contact just like oh that's like the raw situation of where i'm at or wherever this mm -hmm. is sure. you know is that, yeah, yeah. Is that kind yeah. of, is that track? <laughs> I I would agree with that for sure. I would agree with that for sure. I mean, it, it's it's also um, I mean, it's it's a funny thing with all of these traditions is that to know the truth of the nature of humans or or why we're here or, or who we are, what we are is probably more important than than why we are. I think yeah. to know the truth yeah. of of that. It can only be found by looking inside. It, it, there is nothing else you can do. It's it's only about reversing awareness until it becomes aware of itself, ultimately, on the inside. And when awareness is aware of itself, then it can go, oh, shit, that's what I am. Like, it, that realization can can arise. But there is nothing else. There's, no, there's nothing else to do. Because anything else, anything else apart from awareness, paying attention to awareness, becomes looking outside. That's all you can do. Or fabrication of something else. So all of these traditions, on that level, that part of it, have to be the same. Because say I'm going to, what? I'm going to become aware of myself by banging a gong, carrying out a ritual, visiting a temple, uh, sliding my mala beads through my thumb or something like that. All of those are external things. They're all external. They're all outer shell trimming things. So they might help me in some way but they're still not orientating me towards awareness becoming aware of what it is. It, it can't show me the truth of, of who I am. It's impossible to know who you are by looking outside, right? Yeah, yeah. Can't happen. Yeah. I think one of the most important teachings that I've received, and it was one of my very first ones while getting on the path, was that of spiritual materialism. Uh, and it's kind of what okay. you're describing. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. But it a, li a little bit is it Pema Chodron's writings? Did she write about this? Is so that... her teacher is my teacher's teacher, so Chogyam Trumpa, yeah. and you know he came to the West. He's largely responsible for bringing Tibetan Buddhism to the West in meditation, and mm -hmm. he recognized a need to talk about this because it was so prevalent back in the seventies, um, because <laughs> spirituality was really booming on the scene. The hippie movement was in full swing. And what he recognized mm -hmm. is a lot of people using spirituality as a means to reinforce their sense of identity and like kind of just like have sure. like window dressing. So he, mm -hmm. he like dedicated a huge part of his career to really pointing this out of how ego does all these external things and goes to these exotic practices and wears the right clothes and talks a certain way. And we identify as spiritual people, but that doesn't actually 
teach awareness to look at awareness, like you're saying, you know, so it's like calling that out so that it can show people like that's, you can connect to the awareness underneath that. And, mm-hmm. you know, like recognizing that within my own practice, I was like, oh, as a spiritual mutt for 10 years, so to speak, that's like all I did was just like relate with things externally and then like regurgitate, repeat, rather than contacting sure. the actual quality of awareness. And I think that that's, you know, kind of, I have some mala beads right there from that time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't calling out your mala beads. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, please yeah. call it out. That's, that's part of it. I mean, you, you call yourself a spiritual mutt and, and, um, and you, but I would say that even somebody, I was never a spiritual mutt apart from when I was very young. I was always a bit more the other way, a bit more orthodox, I suppose, or a fundamentalist, if you like, I suppose, within these traditions in some ways. But it still created the same problem, fundamentalist or spiritual mutt. It's, you're still attached to the trimmings. And, and I think that the trimmings, the purpose they serve with regards to, if you exclude channels, exclude energy, and we're only talking about the mind, the way I see it is, look, when you're looking inside, by its very nature, you're going to use the mind in some way. We might try not to. We might try to eradicate it. We might try to see through it. But you are going to be using the mind because you, you're, you're turning it around. It's, it's inevitable. So the mind can have all kinds of different parameters and qualities involved in it. So all of the trimmings, the things that people are attaching to, maybe what your teacher's teacher's teacher, teacher's teacher, teacher is calling teacher. Um, – <laughs> The grand teacher is calling spiritual materialism. As much as anything are the things that we should be using to change the parameters or quality of the mind so that when it looks at awareness or when it pays attention on the inside, it sees it correctly. Because an untrained mind that doesn't have any of those qualities is is not going to see awareness for for what it is. So most of the training to me in meditation is you're you're sharpening the tools. That's it. But you're not using the tool. If you get what I mean, like the training is to create the tool, but you eventually have to use it yourself to find that attention, that awareness on the inside. And that's what takes time. (laughs) If you could get the tool perfect, you could do it like that. Boom. You know what I mean? There's me. Boom. There we go. Connection to soul, connection to spirit, whatever you want. I've seen through the the illusion of self, but unfortunately the, the tool is a bit rusty. Yeah. So we have to work on it. Yeah. So I'm curious about this, this phrase, and I think it was my grand teacher that said it, because um, he was asked, and I'm not trying to poke or prod too much, but I think it is an interesting, mm. it was very provocative when I heard it, but he was talking about body-based okay. uh, systems as well, you know, because he was primarily, he was like, shamatha vipassana, that's all you need, like, that's it. Sure. Um, and for him, yeah. he was saying, he was known for saying that, like, you experience the body through the mind. So why not just cut yes. out the middleman and just work with the mind? And I'm just curious mm. for someone like you to hear something like that and what your response would be. I agree. If you can do it, if you can yeah. do it, you completely. But I don't think people can. I've not seen it. Yeah. My direct experience would show me that it's very, very rare for that to be the case because Think of it this way, right? If the day's, what, 24 hours long and then you're asleep for eight of those maybe, so you're up for 16. So what are you spending the majority of your time doing? Well, you're using your body, you're living in your body and you're feeding your body and you're walking around and your body hurts and then your body's tired and then your body feels good. It, it's like a complete somatic experience at all times. So then you go and what? Meditate for an hour a day, two hours a day, four hours a day? 
well, that's four hours. Say we're a really good meditator. Well, that's still 12 hours where you're using your body at all times. So you're, do you know what I mean? Like what you do the most of the time is going to be dominant. So I think that Buddhist teachings, and, and please don't get me wrong, because I'm actually within a Buddhist tradition as well. It's less known. I'm more known for my Taoist connections, but I'm also in a, a Buddhist line as well. And I, I'm a great fan of it. But the problem I see with, I could also give you the problem with Taoism afterwards, but the problem I see with Buddhism is the teachings are designed for people that are spending way more than half of those 16 hours sat in meditation. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that's their default state. So if that's their default state, they're spending more time working with the mind than they are with the body. So therefore, body-based practices do seem kind of pointless. You may as well develop stabilization of awareness until insight arises, and then you can see through the illusion of self to achieve, um, you know, awakening. But I don't live like that. And I don't think most people live like that either. So I think we have this added hurdle of the, the body. And I don't know about, I wouldn't want to comment on individuals, but I do think that when the Buddhists came over to the West, 70s, 80s, even, even some in the 90s that I met, is they came from temples they came, or monasteries. They came from lives where they lived like that. So sometimes we have to recognize the teachings don't necessarily match the people. Yeah. Um, that well so I, th I think that's the biggest hurdle with that but if your body was perfectly sorted i agree mm. just go straight to the mind yeah well, i love that yeah it's it's hard to integrate these things and i think that's the hallmark of mm. like a successful and effective system is like again most of these people spend all their lives in monasteries they're unplugged from the fact that like we as modern folks, like we have bills to pay, we have like houses to maintain and relationships that are sometimes chaotic and unpredictable. And, you know, like I really appreciate systems that include that and use that as the practice material also. I would also say as well, if you don't mind me being a little controversial, but it. I've spent a lot of time around um, monks and, and gurus of different traditions and, and many that have said that similar thing with the mind. And I will say that a lot of them actually fell into debauchery of the body at later stages in their life, which almost kind of discounted what they were saying in the, the first place a little bit. And I sometimes wonder if they'd have regulated their nervous system and their bodies and their somatic physical desires, would such things have happened when they went deeper into their mental work? I, I think maybe it would have protected against it. A, a little bit yeah because the counter yeah. is that Taoism's problem is quite often it's over focused on the body so it devolves into sexual practices and irrelevances like that um as much as anything so they get the balance wrong the other way i think yeah it's you know yeah. somewhere in the middle isn't the middle path important i think someone said it I, somebody did yeah i'm not sure who but somebody did you know, uh, that's something that yeah. I kind of struggle with a little bit. You know, it comes in waves. You know, I, I cannot deny the influence that my grand teacher's teachings have had on me. I love that term. Sure. But uh, but at the same time, I don't know if you know anything about him. So he came over in the West uh, in the 70s. Yeah. And yeah, he was very debaucherous. He actually drank very heavily. He slept with a lot of students. Uh, there's like other potential abuses. But like the thing about it was that he was always apparently very clear and he was never deceptive about it. But it still is like one of those questions, you know, because he exemplified the crazy wisdom tradition, um, which is a part of like the Kagyu school, which is like these 
really enlightened people who just like act kind of sporadically and it's all to like wake you up because they're tantric. And that's something that I struggle with in, in terms of like appropriate is it's like that would not fly today. I mean, maybe back in the seventies, there's more space, but it, it's just like, I can't deny that a lot of this has been really effective and helpful, but at the same time, it's like, you look at his behavior and it's like, we're not going to emulate that, but where does that affect what they're saying? You know? Well, I, I have, I do have an opinion on it, but it's, it's a little damning in that. I think that the caveat before I give my opinion is that people are people and humans are uh, fallible and, and it doesn't matter what level somebody at they they still have a human body and a human mind but at the same time that's what the moral and ethical code is supposed to be for to prevent that from happening so even if you aren't at the stage where you know no desires are ever going to rise it doesn't matter because the desire should meet the 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 firewall of your ethical and moral code which should be built into your system which is a part of the reason why the people that are always at the biggest risk of falling foul of that are the one at the top of the pile because the person at the top of the pile doesn't have anybody supervising them which is a very dangerous position to be in which is why you should never be in that position unless you feel you are almost unhuman in your approach to life i personally would never like to be in a position where i don't have people who are senior to me judging my behavior and, and pulling me up on what I'm doing. And I think somebody like some of the Buddhist or Hindu teachers got to a position where they didn't have any overseers. But that being said, there's the other side to it as well, um, that I think that often people will justify it by saying it's a teaching. I've seen that many, many times. It's like, oh, he smokes cigarettes to teach us a lesson about not being overly attached to our health. And it's like, no, he, you just like cigarettes. Like it, it's amazing how we project to these things. It's like I drink uh, cocktails and things like that. And, and I'm certainly not an alcoholic. I probably drink once a week, once every two weeks or something, but I'll have a couple of cocktails. I live in the tropics. Like what else are you going to do? <laughs> and it's amazing the amount of people who I teach will kind of think one of two things. They'll either think I'm trying to teach them some kind of spiritual lesson, which I'm not. <laughs> I just like having a, a cocktail on the weekend when I've had a hard week. Or they think that, I'm impure in some way, so I'm not capable of passing any methods onto them. Um, and that might be true. Maybe I'm too impure to teach you the direct enlightened path, but it's okay because I'm not enlightened, so it would be hypocrisy anyway. But it's all of these, there's like so much projection and confusing within that. And, and personally, I just think that bad behavior is bad behavior, whoever you are. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's that simple. Yeah. You know, I think, I don't, I agree with you that I don't think that bad behavior is a teaching in itself, but I think that there is something about the idea of like our ideas of what purity is and like what a spiritual person manifests as, you know, because it would be hard to deny, you know, with a lot of these big teachers that there's some level of accomplishment. There's some sense of gravity and power where they've attracted thousands of people who are like intently dedicating themselves. So it's like, there's something happening there, but whether or not that equates to like purity, we, we just have this idea, like any of your students who like, Oh, he's drinking a cocktail. Like that's not what I think of spiritual yeah. people. So I'm going to peace out, you know? So like in that there almost like is an indirect teaching that you shouldn't use to justify bad behavior, but. Totally. I, I would, I would expect my entire school to walk away from me and they must if ever I did something highly unethical or immoral, 
though. That would be an expectation. So if I started, you know, whatever, abusing people physically, psychologically, whatever, I don't know, like on, on the scale of some of these yoga teachers or something, I would expect the whole school to walk away from me and I would be offended by their lack of discernment if they didn't actually yeah. so I, yeah so I, I would defend certain behaviors i'll be honest but but not others but then also like yeah. attainment and skill and and moral or personal cultivation are not always the same thing i've yeah. met some very skillful assholes <laughs> oh sorry i hope you can swear on your yeah, show i apologize yeah. i didn't ask okay right yeah. so i've met some very skillful assholes and i've met some very decent people that have no skill so that they're, they're not necessarily yeah you know correlative uh with one another either unfortunately it'd be nice if nice if they were but it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not the case yeah well that's that's something we all gotta find our way through i guess so yeah yeah, yeah. it looks like we are at time this went by pretty dang quick um oh sure yeah okay. so you know i'm curious before we go uh if people are vibing with what you're putting down how can they interact with you how can they plug into uh your teachings oh i i yeah people can find me i don't i have a rule of not um i don't advertise things no I, plugs I, I, okay I, no 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 i i, I come on because i like having a chat and, and chat with new people and things if they can find me, if they want to find me they can look me up on google i'm around i do stuff Love that wow that was <laughs> That's very humble. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I don't know. I'm busy enough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's real. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Damo, thank you so much uh, for your time uh, in this crazy time of your life of moving and stuff. I really appreciate uh, sharing space and getting to know you. Oh, it's really nice. Thank you very much, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I like your lounge, by the way. I like your uh, design style there. It's good. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. My uh, my roommate uh, does these uh she oh, okay, is cool. amazing just absolutely amazing um oh, okay yeah, so i was admiring that all tree. right yeah well thank you very much yeah of course all right we will see you soon yeah take it easy all right everybody that was the episode thank you so much for listening all the way through until the end once again that was damo mitchell uh, if you want to plug into his online teachings head on over to lotusnigong.com he has a lot of virtual offerings to get you started on your nigong journey i really encourage you to also check out his social media because he's got a lot of free musings that i find to be enriching and just a good part of my social media diet so thank you again so much if you want to support this show you can head on over to apple Podcasts, leave us a review you can rate us on spotify follow us and all the channels uh, youtube subscriptions are also huge i also have a patreon uh, patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism or if you are bold enough to leave me a one-time donation head on over to venmo and my name is brett dash cane dash one you'll see the logo there so no worries if it's the right or wrong one it should be pretty easy uh we will be coming back at you in two weeks with a new episode so thank you so much we will see you soon <laughs>